Alright, you ready? Yes. Hello and welcome to I Lost Track. Is this 30? It's 30. Holy Remember, shit. I made, I made the comment that it would be a few days before your 30th birthday. True. Oh, well, I feel like I should have picked a, like... I'm not saying I picked a bad topic. That's a bad way to start an <laughs> it's episode. It's a bad opening. That's a way bad way. I feel like I should have picked something like, boom, in your face. Because eh. I'm doing something a little bit different today. Um, oh, before we get too far, I'm Jimmy. That's my wife, Lindsay. Hi. Um, you know us. Hopefully. Or you'll get to know us. Yeah, whether you like it or not. Um, so in the past, I've covered, on my episodes, conspiracies, killers, uh really crazy theme parks like kind of all over the place uh today i'm going into a true crime route okay uh an unsolved mystery that has people completely kind of questioning things um and it's actually the only unsolved case of air piracy ever uh it's the only unsolved case of air, air piracy in u.s history Okay, so this is completely different from the two topics you told me. Like, no, this a is week one ago? of them. Is it? Yeah, because you probably don't know the story. Okay. Today we are going to be talking about the mystery around the man known as DB Cooper. Oh, oh, okay. Got it now. Yeah. Um. So this. All of this went down in the 70s. Uh, D.B. Cooper's story went down in the 70s, which makes sense why a lot of people our age don't know much about it. Uh, I'll be honest. I was introduced to the idea of D.B. Cooper and the money he took through the movie Without a Paddle. Mm-hmm. Because that's the whole plot of their the movie is that they're going to try to find his treasure. And they find him yeah. living in the woods. Yeah. I had heard of db cooper before that but i didn't I, I mean i still don't know the story pretty much anything surrounding it i just know that he disappeared with a bunch of money okay so i'm gonna start off right off the bat uh by saying there no one knows who he is yeah db cooper was an alias and in fact the db cooper name was miscommunication among the media apparently every interaction this man had with witnesses he identified himself as Dan Cooper. The media is the one that listed him as D.B. Cooper. Interesting. Yep. Okay. So what we're going to do, we're going to cover the story, the investigation, and kind of where we sit today with this. Okay. Uh, also, maybe why they had that miscommunication? Yeah, so I, we can kind of dive into that really quick i'm just curious like if he went by dan cooper where does the b come from why did they abbreviate dan to just a d i honestly don't don't know know. okay Um, i was just curious i didn't know if there was because like everything says like he used the alias of dan cooper but because of a news miscommunication he became known as db cooper okay um all right so we're gonna start we're going back to the 70s uh Thanksgiving Eve, which I didn't know was a thing, the, the night Eve, before Thanksgiving. Eve of Thanksgiving. Well, it's the night before the Thanksgiving. Eve before Thanksgiving. Yeah, so November twenty fourth, uh, nineteen seventy one, a middle aged man carrying a black case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one way ticket on flight three zero five, a thirty minute trip north to seattle cooper boarded the aircraft a boeing 727 uh, 100 and took seat 18c even though this is debated among people who were on the plane uh in the rear of the passenger cabin so we're talking commercial he's not flying first class Uh, he was described as a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt he ordered a drink uh, the drink was a bourbon and soda while the flight was waiting to take off. So just very calm, normal-looking dude. Flight 305 uh, was only one-third full. The It departed Portland at 2.50 uh, Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, though, uh, we're just going to call him Cooper because that's what he went by on when he bought the ticket, uh, handed a note to the flight attendant, um, a woman by the name of Florence Schaffner. She 
um, was sitting in a jump seat attached to the air staff door. Uh, Schaffner assuming, assumed the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number. She thought he was hitting on her. Huh. Uh, dropped it unopened into her purse. Didn't even look okay. at the note. Well, better than throwing it away. Yeah, well, he saw this, leaned to her, and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Oh. The note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown. Because Cooper took it oh, he back. Did. Okay. Uh, and the reason it's unknown is in her like testimony, it changed multiple times because it's stress. You're gonna screw things up. Yeah. Uh, so there's no like 100%. This is exactly what it said. Yeah, because she's basically just going off of memory. It said something like this. Or... Yeah, and that's exactly. She basically recalled that uh, Cooper said he had a bomb in his briefcase. Well, yeah, I'd imagine after hearing the words "I have a bomb," you're your brain not super gets scrambled. Yeah, about what the note he just passed you is saying. Uh, after she read it, Cooper told her to sit beside him. She did as requested, then quietly asked to see the bomb. This lady's ballsy. Uh, he opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders. Okay. Uh, she even describes them as four on top of four, mm-hmm. so two by four. Attached to uh, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. After closing the briefcase, uh, he stated his demands: two hundred thousand dollars in American negotiable American currency. And what negotiable American currency means is like he wanted it broken up. Like he didn't want all one hundreds. Mm-hmm. He wanted mm-hmm. you know something yeah. that could pass twenties and tens and hundreds yeah. and. Uh, he also wanted four parachutes, which is interesting because he's by himself at this point, okay. two primary and two reserve. So I, I'm assuming he wanted a backup for each. Uh, so he wanted a backup for his primary and his backup for his backup. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, and he wanted a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Okay. So... Uh, Schaffner, the flight attendant, re- conveyed the instructions to the pilots in the cockpit, and when she was returned, Cooper had put on dark sunglasses. Okay. The pilot uh, was a former U.S. Army Air Force's uh, pilot during World War II. He, his name was William Scott. Super generic name. He uh, contacted Seattle T- Tacoma Air Traffic Control, which in turn informed local and federal authorities. Um, they started ruling this as a hijacking okay. because the second he said well, he wanted it refueled, yeah, they knew he w- they were going somewhere else. The other 35 other passengers were given false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed due to a minor tech- mechanical difficulty. So they didn't even tell the people what was going no. on. Okay, I mean. It's it's a smart tactic on one hand because you don't cause panic. Oh, so you prevent panic. Um, and if it is a bomb, like, I'm not saying it would be a bad thing, but, like, if it was a bomb, you take away – if the people on the plane don't know, there isn't that risk of someone being like, I'm going to overpower him and causing him to – going to be a hero. And... Yeah, and causing him to blow up the plane. Um, on the other hand, it's still really screwy. Northwest Orient, the plane company – their president authorized – he was like, pay him the ransom. Just do it. Okay. Uh, and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijacker's demands. Basically, he's give him what he wants. Yeah. Uh, the aircraft circled the area for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and FBI sufficient time to assemble the parachutes, money, and get the fuel truck ready. Okay. So it just yeah. circled in the sky. Uh, flight, another flight attendant recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point remarked as he looked out the window, looks like Tacoma down there. Like he knew okay. where he was uh, as the aircraft flew above it. He also cor- correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20 minute drive, which at the time was true. Now it's not uh, from Seattle Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, well-spoken. And not at all consistent with like the stereotype, stereotypical airline hijacker. hijacker. Yeah, he was very basically okay. I'm gonna give you a quote from her, and then a uh, kind of more info. 
So this is the quote. He wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. While they were waiting, he actually ordered a second bourbon, a so- bourbon and soda and paid his drink tab. That's interesting. Like every account yeah. from the person who sold him the tickets to everyone on the plane said he was super nice. He was super calm. Just kind of mm. he was there to do something and he wasn't he had no interest in seeing other people get hurt as long yeah. as they did everything, which is weird. Like the paying the drink tab part stuck out to me i don't know why because he's not something you really expect like no because he's demanding two hundred thousand dollars yeah but he turns around and pays his drink tab uh this is the other one he also offered to request meals for the flight crew while they were getting refueled he asked the flight crew if they needed any food or anything that he could demand from the negotiators huh so like He's trying to make the people around him as comfortable as possible, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, what a gentleman. Yeah. So flight, a- er, flight agents, FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks. Uh, they did it with 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. Okay. Um, most with serial numbers beginning with L, uh, indicating issuance by the federal bank Reserve Bank of San Francisco. That's just so that they, that's important later because they are unmarked, but there is a way to help track them. Yeah. Um. And they also made a microfilm photograph of each of them. They took pictures of every bill. That's why it took them Damn. two hours to okay. get all this money. Yeah. Um. Cooper rejected the first parachutes offered to them because they were like military issue parachutes. Instead, uh, he demanded civilian parachutes with manually operated rip cords. So some military parachutes open after uh-huh. a certain amount of time or, yeah. you know, at a certain altitude. He wanted ones that he had to pull. Uh, Seattle police complied and obtained them from a local skydiving school. Which would maybe explain why he wanted, like, the backups and stuff is because... Aren't there instances where, like, you pull the cord and it just doesn't? Maybe. I I don't know. Or am I just mimicking movies here? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. I've never looked into skydiving because I have no interest. <laughs> true. Okay, so at 524 Pacific Standard Time, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, that all of his stuff was ready to go. Okay. Uh... And at 5.39, the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was more than an hour after sunset, and Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the aircraft apron, so like the parking area on near uh, the runway, and close, each, close all the window shades. So he didn't want people being able to see in the airplane. Yeah. The reason he did this, Cooper uh, pretty much told them, that he was expecting the police to have snipers set up to take him out. Uh, So Northwest Orient's uh, Seattle operation manager, so their local, like, regional manager, approached the aircraft in street clothes uh, to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He delivered the cash-filled bag and the parachutes uh, to some of the flight attendants via the aft stairs, so they brought them up. Once the delivery was complete, Cooper then ordered all passengers, Schaffner, the flight attendant, and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. He let all the passengers go. Okay. Uh, once, uh, once refueling was commenced, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. He wanted them to fly as slow as possible. Mm-hmm. Um which is not fast. It's 115 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, that's not very fast at all. Um, and he wanted a maximum of 10,000 feet. Okay. So for... Basically, fly as low and slow as possible. Yeah. Um, I'm looking it up right now because I don't want to screw it up. The typical flight for a commercial airliner 
in perspective is between 31 and 38,000 feet. He okay. wanted to fly at 10,000 feet, mm. which is way lower. The reason like you don't typically fly that low is you avoid like privately owned planes, helicopter, well helicopters don't go that high. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Um but anyway. So he further like specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff and landing position, which I don't know if you know much about aerodynamics of planes. Once they're up, they bring the landing gear up because it reduces the drag. Yeah. It makes... He wants it down, I would assume, to create as much drag as possible. Yep. He wanted the wing flaps lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin to remain unpressurized. Damn. Okay. Which, knowing what we know now... He jumped out of the plane. He didn't want to open the door and get sucked out. He yeah. wanted them to fly low and slow so he could so jump. So he could jump. Um, but at the time, like this is a weird list of demands because asking the plane to fly barely above stall with the landing gear down, with the flaps up, like that plane is barely staying in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, the co-pilot of the plane was also in the Air Force at one point. He flew during the Korean War and the Vietnam War. He informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to about a thousand miles under those flight configurations because of the drag and everything, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. So before they crossed the Mexico border, they had to refuel. Cooper and the uh, crew, he sat with the crew and was like, okay, where can we refuel? And the crew helped him. Reno, Nevada is where they decided to refuel again. Okay. Um, While the plane's rear exit door was open and its staircase was extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. Okay. Uh, Northwest's home office objective on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the staircase deployed. Cooper then countered with, it was safe. Um, continued that it was safe, but he would not argue the point. He just said, fine, he closed it, and then as he closed it, the crew heard him say, I'll just lower it when we're airborne. Okay. He wanted it open, because that's where he's, if he had to jump, that's where he was going to jump yeah. out of. FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft before they took off, but was denied. Uh, the re- refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker's truck pumping mechanism. However, once refueling had been complete, the plane took off. So now he has left Seattle. Interesting. It's 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 cool. Not cool. It's I find it kind of fascinating that like he is so like cool, calm, and collected. Yeah. This whole time, and that prevents anyone from trying to do anything crazy crazy because they don't know what he's thinking if if he were being kind of erratic and and like flustered and and things like that i feel like people would be willing to take more chances Mm -hmm. because that shows that he's kind of unorganized and and may not know exactly what he's doing but the fact that he is so relaxed and giving these, you know, clear orders, and this is what I want, and these exact, like, the wings being 15 degrees yeah, lowered, like, and, like... He had this planned. Yeah, and he, that, that obviously and he had knowledge has of some planes. kind of experience with planes and, oh, yeah. and skydiving and anything like Big that. Big time. It's, it's just really... It, it is cool. Okay, so remember, we started this all at... Uh, let me see. What time did the plane take off? 2.50. Okay. 7.40. Now, mm-hmm. the plane departs Seattle okay. with only five people still on board. It's uh, Him, the two pilots, a flight attendant with the last name of Mucklow, and a flight engineer. Okay. Okay. So they get airborne. Two F-106s. So if you don't know what an F-106 is, it's called a Delta Dart. Okay. At the t- At the time, it was the Air Force's, like, primary air interceptor aircraft like okay. their whole job was to take out other planes two fighters were scrambled from mccord air force base and followed this 727 uh one above it and one below it okay the reason they do one above one below is 
you can't see it from any of the windows in the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, a additional Lockheed T-33 trainer, like it's just trainer aircraft, um, also diverted from an Air National Guard mission and shadowed the 727 before that one had ran out of fuel and had to go back. Okay. Overall, there were a total of five planes following the 727. Um, that'll come up later. Okay. Just the five planes. Okay. So after takeoff, Cooper told uh, Mucklow, the flight attendant, to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door co- the door closed. So he sent the entire four people to the cockpit and they shut themselves in the cockpit and he stayed in the back. Okay. Uh, before she entered the cockpit, she rec- realized he was tying something around his waist, but she didn't know what it was. Okay. Uh, approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft uh, air stair apparatus, so the staircase, the staircase that, comes, that he said he was going to lower, when had been airplane. activated. Okay. The crew's offer of assistance via the aircom, uh, aircraft's intercom system was refused. Okay. So they went over to the intercom, asked if he needed help. He came back and said no. Got it. Uh, the crew then noticed a change of air pressure because the door opened. Um, even if you remain unpressurized, there's still going to be a difference. Yeah. At approximately 8.13, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. So stri- trimming just means leveling. Yeah. Um, at approximately 10.15, the... Um, aircraft's aft air stair was still deployed when the plane landed at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, and Reno uh, police surrounded the jet as it had not been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard, but an armed search quickly confirmed his absence. Okay. So at some point... He jumped out. Between uh, 8 p.m., and 10.15 p.m., he jumped. Okay. Okay. So, that's all we know. And the reason I went back to the five aircraft that were how, trailing how it... How did no one see him jump out? No one saw him jump. No one saw a parachute deploy. That's that's weird. so weird to me. That is weird. If they're doing one above, one below, they're, they have eyes on the plane. Yeah. However, again, like... Maybe no one, none of them were expecting him to jump out. They were just. If you've ever, on... if you've ever seen the cockpit of a fighter aircraft, there's a lot going on. Uh huh. And if their mission is just to follow the plane, they're not necessarily watching look... the plane itself, checking to see. But I feel like they would have seen the fucking door open. We're talking what time? Oh, it is at night. It's at night. It's at night. You're right. So low visibility in the first place. Yep. And even if you had seen the stairs open up, you might not have seen someone jump out of it. Yep, exactly. And if you're not looking for that, you're not looking for a parachute suddenly below you. Nope. So that is the entire timeline of everything they know about E.B. Cooper. From him buying the ticket to him jumping. Okay. That's it. Yeah. So now, of course, plane lands, massive investigation ensues. Uh, FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. That's what I was going to ask about was fingerprints. (laughs) The problem is... He wasn't in the system. Well, airliners, there are so many people... Mm, Yeah, true. ...who think about, like, just... Because I was thinking about the two. I'm like, oh, they should be able to identify them. Think about just the tray you lower. Yeah. How many people touch that tray? This was a 30-minute flight originally. Mm Mm-hmm. So if it's just a regional hopper, that yeah. plane probably does six or seven flights a day, mm-hmm. you know? Um, the agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes. Uh, I wonder if they were able to pull anything off of the the glasses that he, or the cups that his drink came in. You know, but you're also talking the 70s. like True. True. We, we've talked about before how spotty some of the investigation work was in the 60s and 70s, especially. Yeah. Um, so they found two of his four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two of the suspension lines had been cut out. The what? 
the suspension lines, like the lines that hold, like connect the chute to oh. the the canopy. Okay. Um, there's speculation that these lines, one of these lines, might be what he was tying around, around his, his waist. waist. Um, like I said, there's a lot of speculation that he might. That's how he might have attached the bag of money to him when he jumped. Okay. Um, because the bag, it and wasn't the... a backpack. It was like a, it was almost like, like a, a duffel. duffel bag. Um, so eyewitnesses were ca- contacted. Um, a series of compo- like composite sketches were done. Uh, I'll be honest. He looks like a very generic 40 year old white dude. <laughs> like, okay. so that's part of the problem. He, he. And I will, we will post the pictures mm-hmm. of, I actually have a picture of the FBI Most Wanted poster for him, which well, is cool. It's like, uh, it's cool. like, we talked about it with the son of Sam, like, you can have an accurate description of someone, but if they look like generally anybody. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, police immediately started, like, questioning possible suspects. Uh, there were more than 800 suspects. I would assume that's due to like fingerprints and everything like that. Um, All but two dozen of them were eliminated very quickly from the investigation. That's good though. Like that's that's actually a really tight narrowing down there. Um, An Oregon man with the unfortunate name of D.B. Cooper had a minor police record and he was brought in as a person of interest. Um, (laughs) The police basically brought him in a lot of chance that he used his real name during the crime. Like, uh, I wonder if maybe that's where the, uh, the news it is miscommunication You're right. comes in. You're right. I, I completely overlooked so this. So this poor bastard who had nothing to do with it now has his name permanently yep. attached. And do you want to wanna know? Do you want to <laughs> know why his name got attached? There was, and we we gonna call him out. A local reporter by the name of James Long. <laughs> was rushing to meet a deadline and confused Dan Cooper and D.B. Cooper. He flipped them. So uh, when he gives his report, he says D.B. Cooper, and that's the name yep. everybody runs with. And then a wire service reporter, uh, a wire service, like basically a news agency reporter. I don't know why it's listed. I, they were listed as a wire service. I looked it up, like what the difference was. If you look up like, wires service it's literally a news agency oh okay um they republished the error of course and then multiple other media sources republished it and it was too late yeah and from then on he was known and let's be honest db cooper sounds more interesting than dan cooper well yeah and of course that just helps dan cooper get away with it that much more because now everybody's confusing the name yep so so it they doesn't don't, even matter what false name he gave. They don't really have a line of suspects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they just don't. They don't have much. So they started coming up. Okay, he jumped. So now they're looking for, like, a search area. Mm-hmm. Uh, precise search area was actually really difficult to define. Um, even with, like, the flight plan and the altitude and everything like that there were so many uh variations in the flight path because they weren't able to stay strictly at ten thousand feet they did a lot of up and down okay uh weather also came into play um so they did a bunch of projected like possible landing points they were all over the place okay um the key is the biggest variable, there are two major variables. They don't know exactly what time he jumped. And also, and this is the genius part on Cooper's side, because it's a manually pulled ripcord, they don't know how long he fell before he pulled. Mm, yeah. So if you pull early, you can kind of glide farther. Yeah. If you pull late, you go straight down and then, you know, so they don't know. Having that, they don't, he didn't use one that deployed on its own, so they can't be like, okay, well he, the parachute would have you know, punched out at, at this altitude, so he probably coasted to about here. Yeah, exactly. So the trailing aircraft, like we talked about earlier, mentioned they never saw a person or a parachute. But again, 
it was nighttime and it was a cloudy night. Mm. Um, there's debate. A lot of people think because it was night, he might not even have opened his parachute. You jump out of a plane if you're like, I'm going to wait till the last possible second to open my parachute. You're not going to see the ground until it's there. You see what I mean? Okay. So they think he might have fucked up and never uh, opened his parachute in time. But. I don't know, though. Like, everything with else how was planned so carefully out, planned. Yeah. I, exactly. I feel like he would have taken into account exactly how far off the ground they were. Like, it, yeah. So initial projections for his landing zone. Uh was an area like near Mount St. Helens um, and a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington. Uh, search, er- search efforts focused on Clark and Coelitz counties. Um, but pretty much they searched the entire area by foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches were even conducted at, like, local farmhouses in the area. Oh. They they scoured yeah. this area. Um, they ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake, uh, which was a reservoir immediately to the east. Uh, no traces of Cooper nor any of the equipment that left the aircraft have been found. Mm-hmm. Not parachutes, nothing has been found. Um the FBI also conducted an aerial search using uh, planes and helicopters from the National Guard along the entire flight path um, from C- Seattle to Reno. So they are trying to cover this whole area. Yeah. Uh, they spotted multiple broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other ob- objects resembling parachute canopies. Uh, and they investigated them, but nothing relevant to the hijacking was ever found. Okay. So, shortly after the spring thaw, because you got to remember, this is the north in the winter. Mm -hmm. So, shortly after the spring thaw, basically, the FBI and 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, connected another ground search of the two counties for 18 days, and then an additional 18 days in April. Okay. Uh, Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Like, they're trying to find this dude. Uh, Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton, an abandoned structure in Clark County, but it was a... uh, not related. It was really sad. It was a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Oh, shit. Yeah, so really sad, but they were able to find that body because of this search. Yeah. So Sounds helps good. give gives the family a little bit of closure. closure. Um, ultimately, the search and recovery operation up until this time was considered one of the most extensive searches in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And they found absolutely zero evidence. Yeah. Um, so, okay, they couldn't find Cooper, couldn't find his parachute, couldn't find anything. So then they look towards the money. Mm-hmm. Can we find the money? Uh, a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the serial numbers mm-hmm. to banks, casinos, racetracks, pawn shops, any business that routinely collected significant cash uh, transactions. And they also sent it to law enforcement agencies around the world on on the possibility that he's trying to do a conversion. Okay. Uh, Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money. Damn. Which is $30,000. Like, that's a good amount of money. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They offered 15% of whatever money was recovered up to 25,000. Okay. Uh, so even if you found it all, 25,000 was the most you could get. Um, in early 1972, so a couple months later, the Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the public. Okay. They were like, fuck it. Yeah. We're going to release them. Uh, in 1972, two men used $20 bills with Cooper serial numbers on them uh, to swindle 
uh, $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter. Basically, they did this whole scam to make money uh, for this, to get this reporter to do an interview with them claiming they were D.B. Cooper. Come to find out the $20 bills they used were counterfeit. And the reason they had the serial number was because it was released to the general public. Yeah. Um, so in early 1973, the ransom money is still missing. No sign of it. Okay. The Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper. So if you turn in a $20 bill, you get $1,000. Um, in Seattle, the Post Intelligencer, which is another news company made a similar offer with a five thousand dollar reward okay the offer remained in effect until thanksgiving 1974 three years after the hijacking and there were several near matches but no genuine bills were found okay uh in 1975 the insurance company um complied with an order from the minnesota supreme court where they were based and paid the airline's claim on the money basically by 1975 the insurance company's like yo you're not getting that 250 or two hundred thousand dollars back we're gonna give you i think they they it says they only gave them a hundred eighty thousand so they took a twenty thousand dollar hit okay um but ultimately that was their deductible i it might have been um so as time goes on they start realizing that the original landing zone estimates were inaccurate um, that was because it was assumed that the pilot was flying on autopilot. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. He was flying 100% manually because of the speed and altitude demands. I was going to say, with the exact specifications that Cooper gave, I would think that he would probably feel more comfortable flying it manually than, and he did. than trusting that And he autopilot. actually flew farther east. He flew east of the, the route. He flew farther east of the route than they originally thought. Mm, okay. So that throws their entire Everything. search out of whack. Yeah. Um. So the they also collected additional data from other sources. So a Continental Airlines pilot who flew in, like, essentially was flying four minutes behind them mm-hmm. because he was flying a similar route just by coincidence. He said that the wind direction that they were fighting when they were flying would have factored in greatly. So, like, it's hard to explain, but Flight 305, the flight Cooper was on, was flying. The pilot's like, this this was the wind we were facing. Mm -hmm. Someone right behind them was like, the winds were changing. Okay. So if Cooper jumped and deployed a parachute, they kept going and the winds changed. His direction could have changed. Yeah. Um, long story short, there's multiple varying factors that, that, uh, kind of determine where he could have ended up. Um, here's the crazy thing. So this happened in 1971. On July 8th, 2016, the FBI finally announced that it was suspending the case the investigation of the D.B. Cooper case. Okay. Citing the need to focus uh, on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Um, and I agree. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning what he did. No one got hurt. Mm-hmm. The company made its money back from the insurance claim. That's, I was a little surprised that their their search was so extensive considering you nobody would... died. Exactly. That's that's kind of what like when I started looking into this, it kind of it kind of it kind of pissed me off. Like yes, because he hijacked there's a plane. Yes, he stole money. There's but... less of a manhunt for people who have murdered like seven people than someone who stole two hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Granted, two hundred thousand dollars. We gonna look it up real quick. I would say for that time, what would that be today? A trillion dollars. Uh, it's probably close. To to over five hundred thousand. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so two hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy one is equal to one point eight or one point one million in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. So, so it's it's a solid amount of money. Yeah. Um, 
but still, like, he took money, no one got hurt, granted, terrible crime, he did, you know, but there are less manhunts for people who killed, like, five people. Exactly. That blows my, it blew my That's mind That's when you were saying, this. like, how extensive the search was, all I could think was, but nobody died. Like. Yeah, especially when they find the girl who was killed and murdered. Yeah. A couple weeks earlier, as a result of this. Um, so I'm anyway. I'm more interested in if they found that killer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they closed, they wrapped up the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually a 60 volume case file of the 45 years of investigation. Uh, and the reason I brought that up is for public knowledge. If you're ever at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., that's where it's at. But you don't need to go there. Because on the FBI website, there's a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years in the E.B. Cooper case that is 100% open to the public to read. Oh, shit. So <laughs> they kind of like, hey, we're done. If yeah. you guys find something, you find something. Um, so we're going to talk. There's no – now that we've talked like investigation, this is the physical evidence that they came up with the investigation. Okay. Um. There's not much. Uh, there's the physical descriptions, mm-hmm. all of which match. Okay. This isn't like the son of Sam where, like, he was blonde. He had brown hair. No. Well, and several people got a close look at him. Yes. So. And this is, like, down to t- 5'10", 180 pounds, mid-40s, brown eyes, smooth skin. Like, straight up. Okay. Gave a accurate description to so the point. No particular where, scars or or spots or nothing. Again, normal forty year old white mm-hmm. male. Like, um, so there were three pieces, three major pieces of evidence we've already kind of discussed. Um, his black clip on tie, his tie clip, and eight cigarette butts. He smoked eight cigarettes while they were flying because the yeah. 70s you could fly well, on a plane. Yeah, you could you could smoke uh, on a plane. The information for the tie. You really and... said you could fly on a plane. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you could fly on a plane too. <laughs> uh, the information about the tie and the tie clip weren't announced to the public uh, until 1991. Um, but interesting enough, the cigarette butts went missing. Of course, they did. The evidence disappeared. Because heaven haven't... forbid you save that that yep. evidence for a time when you can DNA test and it's reliable. Yep. Mostly reliable. So here's some uh, coincidental stuff. Um, in November 1978, so seven years after the hijacking, a placard printed with the instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, within 305 Flight 305's basic flight path. Ooh. So the instructions yeah. on how to lower it. That's suspicious. It is. Um, in 1980, an eight-year-old was vacationing with his family at the on the Columbia River, uh, which is downstream, uh, nine miles downstream of Vancouver, Washington. Uh, he uncovered three packets of possible ransom cash. The bills were disintegrated, but still like bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed the money was part of the ransom. So they found some of the money. Interesting. Okay. Uh, two packets of $120 bills each. So $2,000. Mm-hmm. Um. And a third packet of 90, all arranged in the same order as they were when they were given to Cooper. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, their covered bills were divided equally between the insurance company. They literally gave the money back to the insurance company. Uh, the FBI re- retained $14, $20 bills as evidence. Um, oh, they were divided equally among the kid that found them and the insurance company. Sorry. <laughs> Cute. But... Ingram and his family sold 15 of the bills at auction in 2008 for $37,000 because they were part of D.B. Cooper's money. Really? To date, 
none of the 9700 uh, remaining bills have turned up elsewhere in the world. The serial numbers remain online for a public search. And the Columbia River ransom money and the instruction placard of the stairs are the only physical form of evidence ever found connected to the D.B. Cooper case. The reason I didn't mention them earlier, they were not part of the search. Mm-hmm. Um, this has happened way after. This next one is um, speculative. In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believed uh, to be part of a parachute strap that it was aged the right amount. Like, it looked aged for the area yeah. the right amount of time, but circumstantial at best. Like, uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you're basically reaching with that. Yep. Um... But yeah, I mean, they there's there's some more like FBI released some more disclosures that happened like later in the investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh but they weren't like I said, it they weren't pertinent enough to fall, solve the case. Like it's pretty much, hey, we have this evidence, it's not helping us. Um stuff like this includes like a copy of the plane ticket. Yeah. Um the composite, more composite sketches, the what type of parachute were used. Like, the FBI came out and told all that. That stuff wasn't public yeah. knowledge at the beginning. Um, but that's literally everything about D.B. Cooper and the his ransom of... Hmm. Ransom? His ransom money of $200,000? Um, as far as sub- suspects go... There were a lot. Uh, We we mentioned that earlier. There's actually some named ones. Um, D.B. Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But none of it is... um, None of it's like... Yeah. None of it lines up. Like, there's people that have claimed to be him. There's people that have claimed to know him. There's people that, like, had a weird moment in their life life where they kind of disappeared mm-hmm. and people are like that's who this is mm-hmm. like there's a lot one of which actually what got me to this topic was another person who was suspected to be db cooper um we talked about him and i'll probably do an episode later on but it's a guy who literally killed his entire family it disappeared for like 30 years yeah and they found him with a whole new family mm-hmm. but like that window, when he killed his family and disappeared, was literally like two months before the D.B. Cooper thing. Ah, so it lined and up. it lined up perfectly. Yeah. And a lot of people think that's – he could possibly have done it. Um, but anyway, there were a lot of like copycat hijackings where people tried the same thing. Yeah. Um, in response, you know, airport security changed. Obviously, it didn't change – it sounds really fucking morbid. It obviously didn't stop hijacking problems. Well, yeah. Because we saw that in 2001, September 11th, hijackings yeah. happened. Um, but it stopped a lot of hijackings in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like the airlines were like, okay, we got to prevent hijackings. And then they didn't happen for a while. And they didn't think to update their regulations to yeah. keep up with the times. Like, okay, this isn't something we really have to worry about anymore. Exactly. Um, but at the time, it was yeah a big deal. But like I said, one of the, the reasons I brought this up and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about him is D.B. Cooper and the money. It's one of the, the greatest like unsolved crimes because it's got everything you need. It's got kind of a, from all accounts, a likable criminal yeah uh it's got money Mm -hmm. it's got mystery Mm -hmm. it's got a dude jumping out of a plane in the middle of the night and not being seen like yeah it's got all this element of kind of thing exactly and there's actually conspiracy theories that there this was was all to cover up some spy activity Hmm. um i don't believe it yeah for a second but the D.B. Cooper story, like I said, it was in Without a Paddle. It's been brought up in so many different forms of like, pop loved, culture. I always loved in Without a Paddle. They go with the idea that he didn't deploy his shoot in time. 
No, no, no. It was in without a paddle. It was the guy they find alive isn't DB Cooper. It was his yeah, best friend. That's what I'm it saying. It was he got turned around and he burned the money to stay alive. He he fell down a mine shaft and broke his legs and broke his legs that's and then what he it was. he burned his share of the money to stay alive. Yeah. Didn't work for him though. No. But anyway, yeah, that was uh, DB Cooper. I think that's probably one of my. Uh, it's about fifty minutes. One of my shorter episodes, but different, different yeah. tone, different. Not so much doom and gloom. I didn't know like anything about DB Cooper before. I like I said, I just knew that he disappeared with a bunch of money. I won't lie. Before this, like I didn't know the money came from a ransom. I thought he robbed a bank and then mm-hmm. got on a plane. Yeah, it's it's it is interesting that he demanded a ransom on a plane. They landed the plane, he gets the ransom, and then they take off again. It's just... Well, not only that, like... It just he seems let, very unlikely, but... It sounds, it sounds horrible. He let all these hostages go besides four. Yeah. Um, and even then, it was the like basically the bare minimum of what he needed. Needed to fly the plane. Yeah. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. I thought it would be a, cool, really a cool change of pace. I, I like throwing it. in random episodes like this every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But that was episode 30. I liked it. Good job. Well, you're next week. Yes. So uh, thank you guys for stopping by and listening. Yes. Um, if you enjoyed it, you can find all of our social media links at dyingtoknow.simplecast.com. Like, Rate us, review us, like us, do all follow, the fun subscribe, stuff. Follow, subscribe, um, and, us. And always, if you guys have a uh, suggestion for a future episode, let us know. Yep. Um, you can contact us on any of the social media. You can also email us at dyingtoknow.com cast at gmail.com yeah yep so with that we will wrap this bitch up Mm -hmm. okay love you bye